Hello, and welcome to The Learn It Podcast, a weekly conversation with global education leaders for people who are passionate about the future of learning. Our aim, to introduce you to change makers who are reimagining what students need to know, how they will learn it, and ways technology can help, or not. We look at learning in traditional settings, schools and universities, but also outside of them, after school, at home, and of course, at work. In our second series, we're looking at how schools are coping with COVID-19, including what lessons we will apply to the hopeful aim of building back better. Topics we obsess on include nimble innovations, closing equity gaps, and ways to prepare students with the mindsets and skills to thrive in what is proving to be a very uncertain world. I'm your host, reporter and author, Jenny Anderson. Our guest today is Ed Fido, co-founder of the London Interdisciplinary School, a new university opening in September 2021, which puts problems at the center of the curriculum and methods and approaches around it. More than 100 students have been accepted, everyone has been interviewed at least twice, and 11 faculty were selected from 700 applications, and they're coming from universities, including Oxford, Cambridge, and Harvard. LIS as a startup is interesting, but LIS as a new university is a very big deal. It's not every day that a degree awarding institution pops up in the UK, not to mention one whose admission standards are totally different and which challenges more than a few key foundations. Professors at LIS are there to teach first and advance their own research second. Students are tasked with learning complexity around a problem, childhood obesity, inequality, global pandemics, and not just simply study a single discipline. And students approach the problems with different academic lenses, anthropological, mathematical, historical, as well as with different quantitative and qualitative methods from survey design to statistical analysis and storytelling. The university links the curriculum to real world problems. As Ed says, organizations don't have physics problems. They have sustainability problems and mental health problems. Students need to be trained to think this way. Are we talking about depth or, or is the term we should be using complexity? And I think what, what's important for employers is to be able to say to people that are applying to them, they can wrestle with complex issues and complex concepts. They can kind of tackle difficult stuff. They're brainy, you know, they're smart. That's what employers often are using degrees as a proxy for. Well, there's plenty of complexity in what we're doing because what we're asking students to do is to move around and use different lenses to look at a complex problem. LIS is interesting, but so is Ed. Before LIS, he co-founded School 21 after a career that included being a child actor, running a theater production company and working for McKinsey. School 21 was designed to offer a broader, richer education than just exams to disadvantaged students, which it succeeded in doing through innovative programs like Voice 21, which focuses on oracy or speaking and debating. But at the end of the day, School 21 was boxed in by a system which requires the kids do well on a narrow set of exams. The London Interdisciplinary School is an attempt to dismantle that system, or at least offer an alternative to it. Ed, thank you so much for joining us. It's good to be here. Tell me a little bit of your story, and please don't leave out the bit where you're a child actor for six years playing the part of a <laughs> shape-shifting dog. Ah, okay. That's, all right, you've got me there. Yeah, so it's hard to go back before that because I was I got that part when I was nine years old. And with a surname like Fido, it's not exactly your parents' dream that you're then uh, in a TV show about a boy turns into a dog. <laughs> I was in that show for a few years. I suppose the reason that is relevant to the story of why I've got involved in education is because I went to a school that was founded by some retired teachers. It was a small four to 18 school in the East Midlands in the middle of nowhere. It's a very small school, 300 students in total. And that was a sort of wonderful school in many, many ways, but it was like many schools in the system, very focused on exams. 
And of course, it's in the kind of quiet, leafy part of the East Midlands. There's only so much going on. And then I had this kind of dual existence where from nine till about 15, I was going off every summer to make this TV show for about eight weeks where I'm working with adults in these kind of, you know, multi-skilled teams of, you know, problem solving, how to kind of fix problems with the dog or the weather or whatever it might be. And I was treated like an adult and just an adult member of that team. And I felt I had this kind of dual education and, and I genuinely was feeling coming back to school thinking, I think everybody would benefit from these kinds of experiences. So that, I think that sowed the seed, that combination of going to a school that had been founded by some teachers, this other experience of kind of working in groups and teams, creating something for other people. Those sowed the seeds, I think. And then you end up at McKinsey before we found a school. So are we happy at McKinsey being a management consultant or do we desperately want to get out of the rat race and do something different? Every, everyone's happy being a management consultant at McKinsey. <laughs> they all want to stay there for 20 years. Not true. <laughs> Not true. Look, most people go there as a stepping stone. Some stay by accident. That's generally what happens at places like that. And 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 for me, I, I, was, I did engineering at university. Then I was running a theatre production company with a mate of mine for about five years. So that means you were losing money trying to put on plays. And then I thought, right, I want to start a school. So I, it was genuinely part of the plan. Go somewhere I can earn some money, probably leave afterwards and make even more money, then start a school. But then 2010, or rather in 20, 2009, it became clear that the, if the Conservatives got in, they'd introduce free schools. And so this brought my plan forward by about 10, 15 years, literally. And so around 20, 2009, 2010, when, when it looked like the, the Conservatives might get in, and of course, they ended up getting in, but in coalition, but they kept the free school policy. I handed in my notice about five, six days after the election and left to start what became School 21. And then we're going to go from School 21 to where we start our story today, which is the London Interdisciplinary School. What was School 21? What was the goal? What did you achieve? The goal was pretty blurry. I find with education, people are much clearer about what they don't want education to be. And then when you ask them about what they want it to be, it's less clear. And I think that's part of the power of the current paradigm. It's very clear what it is. It's it's a set of exams which will get you into university. And you can sort of innovate around that. So it's like, how do we get better results? How do we get better results for more disadvantaged students? How do we get disadvantaged students into college? Uh, there's various reasons why I think that's a broken system, a broken model. And it's not necessarily that it's not very good at it. I think it is actually reasonably good at it, other than the system it sort of fails a third of the students systematically in this country anyway, because that's the way the exams are designed. But I was very clear that school's boring, you're only learning a narrow set of disciplines, uh, exams are high stakes and too much pressure and don't really actually tell you that much about what you're capable of. So, but what are you going to do? And so I, I met two other, uh, they, were, they were teachers, I wasn't, I was coming from McKinsey, Peter Hyman and Ali Botton, and they had a bit of a clearer idea of what this school could possibly be. But it was always about what could school be, what could education be for, not let's try and get a bunch of disadvantaged students into university, which is an honourable goal, but that's never been my ambition, partly because I think the what of education isn't right. So I'm not particularly motivated by giving that same what to a broader set of people, because I think the what needs to be challenged. And did School 21 successfully challenge that? Where did it succeed in that and where did it not? Part of the attraction of university then is that you're not restricted by the exam system. Schools are constrained. We ended up in a disadvantaged part of London and, and I'm very glad that that's where School 21 is. It's in Stratford in East London. It's one of the most disadvantaged 
parts of the country. And you have to make sure those students get the exams they need because that is the system we live in. So you're immediately constrained by GCSEs and A-levels, which is very constraining. We're doing a bunch of stuff around that. We're doing interdisciplinary projects at School 21. There's a massive focus on speaking skills or oracy as it's been rebadged. That curriculum of oracy has now been taught in 700 schools around the country. So thousands and thousands of teachers, tens of thousands of students, 100,000 students maybe now. So there has been successful elements. I think the speaking skills part of it is a genuine success, breakout success. That charity is now led by somebody called Becky Earnshaw, who's doing a fantastic job. It's called Voice 21. And School 21 has had, you know, a thousand plus visitors come, school leaders from around the country and stealing ideas, which is brilliant, but it's still constrained. Um, And Peter Hyman, who was the original head teacher, was always frustrated by that, you know, by our ability to generally break out. And one of the things that's causing that problem is that universities are only asking for a very narrow set of expertise. You know, if you're a physics tutor at a university, you're interested in how good an applicant is at physics. And, and they are quite open. They don't care about much else. And of course, that drives behavior in the school system. Which leads us beautifully to... The starting point for today, you founded the London Interdisciplinary School. What problems are you trying to fix with this? It's a brave endeavor to start a university. We're opening this autumn with hopefully around 100 students, and it's an interdisciplinary bachelor's degree. Uh, That's what we're starting with. We're we're also introducing masters and other kinds of courses over time. What problem are we trying to solve? We're looking at the university sector and we're saying, right, what's wrong with it? First thing that's wrong pretty much in the UK, everybody's selecting a single discipline degree for three years. And we, of course, we need a bunch of people to do those. We need doctors and lawyers and expert chemists, engineers, and so on. But we also need a bunch of people that aren't just schooled in just history or just physics, because actually many of those people go on to do jobs that have nothing to do with those skills. So that doesn't feel fit for purpose. So let's do something that breaks away from that particular straitjacket. And by doing that, we feel we'll also signal to schools that they don't have to narrow down and get students doing just sciences at A-level or just arts at A-level, which is what's happening. Can we do admissions in a different way? So we have interviewed everybody that's applied to LAS, which means hundreds of people. And we've, we're looking at a bunch of different things, not just what A-levels they've done. We are looking at their A-levels, but we're looking beyond that as well. And we're interviewing them. And we're trying to, therefore, recruit a more diverse set of people than we'd normally go to a Russell Group course. That's the second thing. And then the third thing is about porosity. We're connecting to the outside world in a more meaningful way. And the final thing is to say, look, we're focused on teaching, which I think, you know, liberal arts colleges in the US unashamedly focus on teaching. We don't really have that in the UK at the sort of, let's say, prestigious end. So places that are hard to get into in the UK, sort of inversely proportional to how much they're focused on teaching and learning versus research. Those academics in those top institutions tend to be motivated and actually incentivized by research. We're we're not. We're focused on fantastic teaching and learning. So there's a few different things that we're trying to tackle. You have a problem-based curriculum, right? You have a problem-based approach. The subject does not sit at the middle. So my core question is, how do you avoid going so broad that you're not deep enough? There's two ways of thinking about this. One is to really ask the question, do degrees go deep in reality? And we can interrogate that. And the second thing is, are we asking the right question? We tend to replace depth with complexity. So let me take the first one, which is, do degrees actually go deep? So I did mechanical engineering. And the reality is, you don't go deep and deep and deeper into some journey called engineering. What happens is in term one or or year one, you do 10 different modules in thermodynamics and fluid mechanics and statistics and so on. And you, you do the module 101 in those things. And in the second year, you do the one, the, you know, the 201 or the 102 in fluid mechanics and, uh, uh, or, or solid mechanics and thermodynamics and maths. 
Okay, so, and then in year three, you tend to branch off into a range of different things or, or, or do some project which hopefully combines them, but often doesn't. So is that depth? Well, sort of, but not really. And in, and in our degree, you will in year one, you could do a module on coding. And in year two, you could go deeper into that same module in coding. So in a way, you're going to the same level of depth as you, as you would in a university. It's just that you're not doing everything from that same field at module one and module two. But the second thing I think is more interesting, which is, is it, are we talking about depth or, or is the term we should be using complexity? And I think what what's important for employers is to be able to say to people that are applying to them they can wrestle with complex issues and complex concepts they can kind of tackle difficult stuff they're brainy you know they're smart that's what employers often are using degrees as a proxy for well there's plenty of complexity in what we're doing because what we're asking students to do is to move around and use different lenses to look at a complex problem first of all conceptualizing the complex problem is no easy thing if you're thinking about i don't know homelessness or youth violence through to climate change or pandemics these are complex problems and then if you're using different lenses to interrogate them uh, historical lenses or anthropological or perhaps data science lenses or mathematical lenses to model it and then you're combining the insights from both that has a level of complexity which I think matches any degree. And explain the concept of threshold concepts and how much that factors into how you are actually designing the curriculum. So we don't ignore the fact that disciplines exist they're useful I mean they're certainly useful when you're younger so that you can kind of you know all that stuff to do with nature or sort of bodies you can make it biology and, and, and that helps you navigate. So certainly in the first year, students will know that they're taking a disciplinary lens, let's say in biology, and then there's some threshold concepts in each discipline. So evolution might be one within biology, which if you can understand it, has unlocks various aspects of that discipline. So it's a particularly important, it has in a hierarchy of concepts within that body of knowledge, it's higher up the hierarchy. And we're trying to focus on those kinds of concepts, threshold concepts. They're often quite hard to crack, but once you've cracked them, you can navigate that that discipline more effectively, the big ideas from those disciplines. And then there's another kind of thing called super concepts. And, and actually evolution will be one of those as well. But super concept is this concept that, that originates in the discipline, but then has relevance to basically the whole world. It has relevance elsewhere. So entropy would be one that originates in thermodynamics and then kind of has applicability pretty much everywhere. Um, and those are sort of, I guess, interdisciplinary concepts. So they, they show up too in our curriculum. And so what does the curriculum look like? If I'm a student, I'm starting, what am I taking? Everybody in year one will be taking a problem. So the problem they'll be tackling in year one will be mental health and well-being. That's term one. Term two, I think I'm right in saying, is inequality. And then year, year two is they're getting into kind of technology and ethics and, and so on and so on. And so term one, well-being. This is where they get some choice. They can have some choice over the discipline, disciplinary lenses that they take to interrogate that problem. So in working in groups of four or five, they'll define a problem within the idea of well-being. So it's a bit more narrow. So they just, they with the faculty will decide what problem they're going to look at. And then they might take a neurochemistry lens. They might take a linguistics lens. So they'll take three or four different disciplinary lenses on that problem. And that's where they'll be learning the threshold concepts. And they'll also be working in problem groups to try and make connections. That's about 50% of what they're doing in term one. So as they're packing a lot in, and then in the rest of the time in term one, they're learning methods. So these are our research methods. And there they're going to be doing qualitative or quantitative methods. So they might be learning some data analytics there on the quant side or on the qual side, kind of videography or ethnographic research and so on. So they will come out after three years with these two things. The degree is called a degree in interdisciplinary problems and methods, right? So they'll have this ability to use different disciplinary lenses on a complex problem. They'll also have these concrete tools, which we call methods, which are useful in a range of different jobs, like statistical analysis and, uh, you know, how to design brilliant surveys and that sort of thing. 
And let me use you as an example. You studied mechanical engineering. Did you want to be an engineer or you just didn't know what else you wanted to do? My logic on that was I liked the arts and I liked the sciences. I felt in my spare time, I'd probably keep the arts going. So why not do a science degree? But I wanted to go a bit broader. So I did engineering. That's pretty much the size of it. I had no intention of being an engineer. Would this approach have appealed to you? A hundred percent would have appealed to me. And I think most of us are trying to design the degree we would have liked to do. And do you think now that you've designed it, you would come out with enough that you needed in structural engineering had you chosen to go into engineering? No. Actually, I mean, an engineering degree, you sort of need to go through your chartered status and all of that anyway. So, and look, I want to be really clear. And I, you know, I went to Imperial, which is a decent university, but it wasn't a good teaching and learning experience, number one. They failed 30% of the year in year two. And sort of we wore that as a badge of honor rather than thinking, let's improve the teaching and learning so that everybody passes. And every time at the end of the year as a sort of throwaway, they did a design project. Most of us had no clue how to put together all of those different bits of maths and thermodynamics I talked about earlier, we could sit exams in, in them discreetly and do well. And I got a two one and all the rest of it. But if you asked me to put them all together to design a bridge, I would have no clue. So I wasn't ready to be an engineer after a mechanical engineering degree, but no, you won't be ready for that. And if you want to become specialist, you can go off and do a more specialist masters, or you can do another form of training. It's a brilliant preparation for a, for a life of learning though. I think that's, that's definitely something we can stand beside. So you have 11 professors. Talk about recruiting them. Were they hard to get? And what will they teach? Well, I was worried about recruiting them because, first of all, academics are not necessarily renowned to be big risk takers or entrepreneurial. Actually, that's that's not the same thing. Maybe not risk takers with their career, but they are quite entrepreneurial. They tend to actually be sort of, they almost self see themselves as self-employed within a big institution. So it's an unusual breed, actually, academics. We had 700 applications for these 11 positions, which was an order of magnitude more than I was expecting or any of us were expecting and I I thought it would be a bit tricky to recruit them so we had to introduce another round in order to filter them out but the the big difference with our recruitment was that we we had them all teach so we asked them all to prepare a lesson around a complex problem but using their discipline and they came and had to teach it in person because pre-covid to 20 students and the students gave us feedback on those on those teachers and obviously we judged them as well that was one of four rounds that they had to go through to get down to the 11 that we that we have and every every teacher that we that we offered a place to has joined us and they've joined us from the old prestigious stuffy establishment you know they're coming from oxford and cambridge and and LSE and Harvard and UCL. And Carla, our head of academics, is a, is a professor from UCL. But they are young on the whole, in their 30s, typically. Not very young. They're not sort of recently out of PhDs. They've got some research behind them. They do want to carry on doing a bit of research, but they don't necessarily want to be in this kind of publish or perish environment of the modern British academic system. And they're excited to create a new university. Do you think a new institution needs a little bit of pedigree to give it some more safety, since it's a risky sort of endeavor as it is? It's always helpful to have a bit of reassurance because it's a big leap for young people to make. This is not something that we planned, but when students now ask us, how hard is it to get in? Are you Russell Group level or not? Because we haven't set a minimum bar for A-levels, which is how students normally think about it. One thing for us to say is, well, our, our faculty have all come from the Russell Group and that kind of reassures them of a certain quality. So it's actually been helpful from that sense. I expected to see almost no correlation between institution, research capability and teaching ability. But in the end, the best teachers were the ones who were also coming from the top institutions. I don't think that, you know, all of the teaching in those institutions is as good as as the faculty that we've recruited. We've probably nicked some of their best teachers. But yeah, I was surprised by that. So you were meant to launch in 2020. There were delays in accreditation, which ended up being super fortunate because then came COVID and it would have been a tricky year to launch a university. 
What are you doing differently as a result of that year you were given to kind of think and reevaluate? And by the way, the whole world changed during that year. I mean, I wasn't glad at the time. The delay in accreditation was was hugely frustrating. But in, yeah, you're right. In the end, probably a good thing. I'm glad we didn't open last year. It has been this amazing natural experiment where everyone's been forced to teach online. We've been doing some teaching online. We've launched three courses uh, for group, different groups of professionals in the last 12 months on different topics, one of which was COVID, one of which was two of which were called navigating happiness. So there are interdisciplinary approaches to the two different kinds of complex problem. And so our faculty has had that experience. And we've also run, by the way, the entire first term as a trial earlier this year with 25 students. So we've already run the entire first term online. So we know if COVID comes back or something else comes and hits us, we know we can do this thing 100% online, but it's not as good. That is our strong belief. So now you're faced with the question, two things. What is the best pedagogy for the students to learn And that is something that might actually be answered by a range of different things. That might be answered by go and read the book on it. It really might still remain the best pedagogy to go and physically read a book. Okay. But then there's a whole range of things right through to -to one-to-one face-to-face tuition in person. Okay. There's then a second thing which we're asking ourselves, which we should have been asking ourselves anyway, but I think people ask it now is why show up? And I don't mean why show up physically. I mean, why show up live? So why do I actually have to be present when the thing is happening rather than watching a recording of it? And we should have been asking ourselves that before. I think students were, and they weren't showing up to lectures. <laughs> they were going, why should I show up live to that? I don't need to. But don't teach it if there's no reason to be there. Don't, don't teach, don't put on a live event if you don't need to show up. So the teachers are now charged with this question. Why should anyone show up to this lesson? And what is it about my lesson that I need to change if the answer to that is, well, they don't need to show up. They can do it asynchronously. So we're starting with the question, what's the best way to teach this? And then why show up? And I think what it'll end up is, is there will be more online, there will be some more that's asynchronous. And but the in person stuff, I think needs to be really fantastic, and really kind of visceral or interactive. And I think we need to have a higher expectation on the students to have prepared for it. So the students come with questions. We want to teach the students how to ask fantastic questions. It's something we thought about a lot at School 21. I think the ability to ask penetrating questions is one that serves you well in life, not just as so generally, but as a learner, it's really important. And as I think as an interdisciplinary learner, to be able to ask good, intelligent questions when you're approaching a new topic, a new discipline is really valuable. So we can do that with a whole range of different things. Students can be watching videos, watching videos that are curated by us or created by us. And then they can come with questions for that live interactive event. There's, there's a reason to show up is to ask questions. You described this as a raging debate. And I just want to dig a little deeper because I think it's a question a lot of people are asking how much of a bachelor's can be online. And I'm curious if you could just maybe talk about if you were to you know, do a diagram of the different positions and maybe where you are. So there's three tensions, convenience, pedagogical effectiveness and creating a social environment. And we're trying to create a balance between those things. Now, where are the debates? We, we tend to find sometimes the quantity teachers, the, the mathsy sort of teachers, for good reasons say, look, this is online tool. It's actually better pedagogically for me to teach this thing online. So I don't want to come in and teach it face to face. It's not as effective. And I can understand that. My position actually is probably the furthest the other way. And, and because what am I interested in? I'm interested in creating a buzzing campus life in this early early stages of COVID, number one. Number two, these students have been robbed of a face-to-face education and a face-to-face experience in their sixth forms or in their year outs or whatever it might be. They have been deprived and shoved, you know, stuck in their bedrooms for, for a year and longer. And they deserve to be face-to-face. And they've taken this risk on this new institution. 
and they want to meet other crazy people that have taken the same risk and they want to meet them in person and face to face. So I'm keen to push our teachers to be doing as much as possible face to face for that for the social reasons. But I actually I actually think here that the biggest difference between between the two the two camps, if we were over to, to oversimplify it, is that both camps are saying the burden of proof is on you to prove that your way is better. And it's very hard. So that that's the that's the fundamental position. My point is, prove to me that online is better. It's very hard to do that. But if you start from the other side and say, prove to me that face-to-face is better, so because why should I bother coming if, if face-to-face isn't better? That's also very hard because beyond, well, you have conversations in the corridors before and after the lectures, and that's really valuable. Well, that can be trivialized. So it's very, very hard. So it's, we, you know, And are we really going to mandate everybody to come in face-to-face? That feels a bit draconian. But if you don't, you kind of know that on a wet Tuesday morning in November, everyone's going to kind of go, oh, I'm going to stay at home today. And then the place is empty. So there's a, from a leadership perspective, it's tricky. But I, I, what we're going to be doing is saying to staff and students on certain days of the week, you have to come in face to face. And then on other days of the week, the faculty are going to make a decision about what they think is pedagogically best. So it will be blended. And we're going to review at Christmas. We're going to review at Easter because, by the way, everyone's still learning about how this thing works. You have 88 students who have accepted. You want to get to 100. Admissions are rolling. You told me you've had hundreds of applications, nearing 1,000. Tell us about the types of students you are getting. Uh, we've actually had many more than that now, except because our deadline was is today for uh, the first wave of acceptance. So we're into triple figures on acceptances. The kinds of students we're getting a, a broad range. They, The ones we've made offers to are all exceptional in some way. So back to your Todd Rose comment about sort of jagged, jagged learners. We're all jagged, right? And, and, and we're assessed against means but and measured in, and organized in that way, but really we're all jagged. Well, the, our approach to interviewing and looking at all of the data means that we can spot the jaggedness of our students. And so sometimes in A-levels, for sometimes very good reasons, they've underperformed. And you can sometimes see that because their GCSEs are, are wildly better. You can also look at their context and what's been going on for them. And so for that, some of those reasons, they may have gone down on, a, on A-levels, but if they do a fantastic academic interview with us, and we can see they're highly motivated and want to be part of something bigger than themselves and want to tackle complex problems, then we might make them an offer. And sometimes we've offered and said, but you also have to complete this other piece of work or do this other essay, right? So highly personal offers. Pretty much everybody's been offered different grades because we're looking at what journey we think they're on. So there'll be some people who are headed towards three A stars at A level and we'll make them an offer that reflects that. But there'll be people with lower A levels or headed for lower A levels where we'll make them a a lower offer, but only if they've done brilliantly in other areas or they're doing something exceptional outside of school. And we want to reward that. So yeah, we're getting people who are, some are very artsy, but they're not afraid of maths. And that's what we have to test for in the interview, right? So if they're coming to us with arts and humanities A-levels, we have to make sure they're not scared of maths and they're going to be able to do that. Some are very sciencey and are kind of considering us or medicine, but they are all interested in different kinds of complex problems. It's something else we ask for at the interview. And they're quite interested in the fact that we're completely new because of course for many many students that's off-putting and i understand that you're self-selecting for innovators in a way do you think covid will make people more risk averse and head more to traditional or more open to new experiences and more towards you and i guess the data you have is did applications fall off in this very bizarre year you don't have a huge kind of set before that so it's very hard to compare but i guess what did you see and what's your instinct on what this year will do well it's interesting we did run a part of an admission cycle before we had to delay and the numbers are actually broadly similar so from that sense it didn't change hugely i Look, I, I'm sure 
it's a bit of both. I'm sure some students want to play it safe now because the world seems scary and uncertain. And I think others are thinking, well, let's be honest about what's happened with universities in the last year. They've not had a good year or a good 18 months. They were, they were starting to come under the hammer a bit before that with, you know, vice chancellor salaries and all that sort of thing and not having enough disadvantaged students coming in. And, and there's always controversy over fees. But the last year has been more about, do you actually care about these students? You know, the Harris Benton round kind of student halls up north. And, you know, that, that, that's a bad look for, for, for universities. And so suddenly this kind of jewel in the UK crown of the UK university system doesn't, has lost its shine. And I think that's helpful for us because it means people are starting to look elsewhere. They're starting to say, well, maybe not UK universities, maybe not university at all, or maybe this crazy new LAS place that is doing something really different. So I think that helps us for a small subset. And I also think that both students can see this, but also employers, that tackling complex problems is going to be important in our in our future jobs market. I, I think, you know, board, being on the board of anything now, a charity, a, a, you know, being frankly, being around the cabinet table and not doing the maths, being like, I don't really do the maths or the science. That's not okay anymore. You need a you need a working ability to be able to sort of you need a fluency of some kind in everything to be able to move around these different things and piece them together to take a view about what's likely to happen with this pandemic or the next thing that comes our way. So to that from that perspective, I think it helps us. Carl made this point to me, which is that he hopes that this appeals to a student that is probably most likely to go towards it because it seems riskier. Wealthier kids can take the risk on something new and different. They have more social safety nets. But if you come from a disadvantaged background, sort of law or medicine is going to seem like a sure bet. But that that's the student he wants because he's convinced it actually will be better for them. If that's a population group you want, how do you make that case to them? So they say to us, how are we going to get a job when many organizations won't have, won't have heard of us, won't have heard of LAS, which is true. And we can't lie about that. Of course, they, many won't. I think there'll be some employers for whom they won't give them an interview. So they, because they haven't been to Russell Group University. So if you want to work for a big multinational that still says you have to have got a 2-1 from Russell Group, you won't get an interview. And there'll be many employers for whom it's much more exciting than if you've got a 2-1 uh, as you know standard subject in a, in a Russell Group. And, you know, there's, there's 400,000 people studying at Russell Group at any one time and, and, and you know, 71% and more are being 2-1s or firsts. So it is, you know, 100 and something thousand are coming out every year with a two-one or something that there or thereabouts, you've got to differentiate yourself from Russell Group universities alone, and obviously many more from other universities. That's just a handful of them. You've got to differentiate yourself from those, and and so this is a way of doing it. And actually, if you're from a disadvantaged background and you haven't got the networks, and you're going to go to Bristol to study history, you're going to come out without the network. So you're you, okay. You've got your two-one from Russell Group University, but you're competing with a bunch of people who've also got that and networks. Whereas if you go to LAS, you kind of leapfrogging for some jobs. You'd be like. Okay, do you want to go with that person who's got the usual thing? Or me, I took a big risk. I'm brave. I've done this different kind of got this different kind of education. I've got these different organizations on my CV because we're helping with internships, which we can come on to. We basically tell them the story they're going to be able to tell, and that some people will be excited by that story and some people won't want to hear that story. And by the way, do you really want to work for those companies? I've heard you say over and over again in here, and I know it's just a bigger, broader conversation. How do we align? The university experience more with employment. How are you doing that specifically through the internships, but also through your corporate learning model? I don't know if there's a connection there. I'd love to hear if there is. Yeah, well, the key thing here is problems. Problems are effectively, if you like, the API. They're the, they're the thing that enables an organization to understand what the hell it is the university is talking about. Because 
organizations don't have physics problems or chemistry problems often in the same way, but they do have mental health in the workplace problems and they have diversity problems or they have sustainability problems. So they can suddenly then come and have a conversation with you. And we have, we've had sort of breakfast um, during COVID online with companies on AI and ethics. And so we've had from our side, we'll have a philosopher and a machine learning academic. And on the other side, we'll have people working in startups with technology or DeepMind's former head of ethics or whatever. And, and they can all have a conversation. Term one, mental health, we're going to have, and we had this on our online version that we did as a, as a trial, we had for that, the head of HR from, a, from Investec, a major investment bank, who's also a clinical psychologist, come and talk to us about how he thinks about mental health in investment banking business. We had someone from the mayor's office doing the same, someone from TikTok, someone from a mental health charity. And so those organizations can come in and talk to students. And then the students are then going off and thinking about their problem using all these different lenses, and they can keep referring back to what it is they heard from those organizations. So already you're starting to lift the curtain on what happens in organizations and how they think about it. And you can start to make your own connections. But at the sort of business end of this, you try and get the students' internships into places they're excited about going to. And so our commitment is that we're going to broker student uh, placements for students at least five weeks being paid the London living wage in a range of different organisations. And organisations are, I mean, there's almost no, you almost never get a no, honestly. So we're just, we, we, you know, so students say to us, hey, we, we'd like, and this came up a couple of times, to have placements at the World Wildlife Federation. I'm like, well, okay. So we try and figure out a connection and, and lo and behold, they're really up for it. And, and that's happening in so many different ways. Uh, small organisations, you know, massive ones, government, local government, so Tower Hamlets and Camden, Cabinet Office. It's really exciting. And so we say, so we'll be putting those students either in individuals or in teams to work on sometimes really exciting projects, sometimes probably quite boring internships. But either way, they'll get some money and they'll get something on their CV and they'll make a bit of start to build their own network. And and we're not being prescriptive about the sector. In fact, we're trying to encourage them to branch out a bit. If they say, I want to do three placements at banks over three years, we'll say, well, why don't you try a couple of different things? Because they'll actually help you, even if you set on being a banker for the rest of your life, you know, to have worked in the public sector will that, or a startup. Well, that'll help you get a job, actually, at a bank. What haven't I asked you that I should ask you? Um, what's keeping me away? Good night. No, I think, look, one thing I'll talk about, which I've not talked about, I didn't answer your question, is on the how the us teaching people in the workplace works. So I think it's the same answer in a way. You can still, we're constructing courses for professional development courses, and we're going to be designing an online master's as well. And all of it is interdisciplinary problems and methods in the end. It's just that we'll be, they'll be slightly more specialized. So we've already run someone navigating happiness. And we've got people, we've had people come to that from the police force, as well as Fidelity, um, as well as Propercorn and Frontline, the social work um, organization, coming together in cohorts because they all care about navigating this knotty thing of happiness or well-being in the workplace. And we've got a completely different take. And I like to think of it as kind of, it might not be the first course you take on well-being, but it might be the second one, which gives you this really different viewpoint because you're thinking about the power of narrative in relation to people's well-being and tackling anxiety. And so you can, and we think really quite sophisticatedly about that before flipping to mood molecules and what actually is happening in your brain when you go outside for a walk and why do you come back happier and then the next one and then the next one and so they're coming out with a much more sophisticated view of happiness rather than just a few frameworks for kind of making people happier which might be what happens if you go on a kind of a typical well-being course would be a bit that's that's probably not fair but, but you know what i mean so it's a, it's, a, it's a different kind of thing and there's endless options and possibilities for these kinds of problems that exist in the workplace internally like well-being or diversity or externally if they're trying to think about climate change and 
you know, sustainability and, and technology and so on. Quickly, in two minutes, what's the business model? How do you actually make this work? If you get a thousand plus undergraduates, you can make this work on its own. But we want to create something that's of more value than just £9,000 for each student. And so to do that, you know, our faculty are not spending as much time doing research. So frankly, they have the capacity to do the teaching of people who are already in the workplace. And and, and it's sort of that simple. It, it gets, you know, this, it's not as simple as that in some ways, but... We can, we can take a lot of the curriculum and a lot of our approaches from the bachelor's degree and we can say, how about you do this short course on inequality? You work in, you work in government and we can be working with our streamers in the civil service saying, here's an interdisciplinary approach to thinking about inequality. Maybe this will kind of change how you think about policymaking. And that is how we, we make the numbers add up, basically. So the corporate learning does basically subsidize the undergraduate yeah cross subsidizes and the reason it does is because it's, it's it's sharing most of the same fixed costs when is the best time to go to interdisciplinarity is it at high school is it master's is it phd is it university have you kind of settled on an answer to that one no i, I i'm not qualified for an answer on that there's that that is another debate and and the two people i've worked most closely with in in terms of teachers in the last 10 years. So Peter Hyman at School 21, he would believe you can go very young. Carl Gombrich, who's our head of academics here at LAS, would believe you probably should wait to university. I don't know. But what I would say is, I think there's no harm in moving in and out of interdisciplinarity. I think it is good to focus rather than say go deep, to maybe to focus in an area, uh, maybe for your master's, or maybe if you did for your bachelor's, maybe you could do an interdisciplinary master's. But I think to have it in your locker, these interdisciplinary tools at some point is very valuable. We tend to find people who are a bit more experienced and more experienced leader in the leadership scale have had to think in an interdisciplinary way. They've had to grapple with trade-offs and see how everything connects. So they sort of intuitively get all of this. The people that are in their mid to late 20s who are trying to get better at accounting or consulting, whatever it is they're trying to do, are not as engaged, frankly, as the people that are a bit older. So that's quite interesting. So whether the 20-year-olds need it or don't need it, I don't know. I don't know, but it's, it's, it's an interesting question. You've been calling for a more holistic approach to K-12 learning as well as to higher ed. Do you think COVID has helped your cause? Are the revolutionaries gaining more traction towards a more holistic approach in Britain? I, th- I think yes, but... I, and I remain a, a board member of Big Education, which is the trust that houses School 21, who have big ambitions to make difference here, to get everybody a big education, by the, which we mean sort of a holistic approach. I think a change in government is going to be needed for this because there's a sort of, there is just a, for some reason, this becomes politicised or has become particularly so in the last 10 years. And to be completely honest, the current the current schools minister, he's been the schools minister since 2010, is not interested in this approach. He doesn't believe it's the right way forward. And so you'll always have a break on innovation and more holistic thinking while, because the government is hugely important in, in this country, in our education system. And I think we can make progress. Maybe COVID's going to help. The big thing that will help is getting our act together, being ready for a change in government. Then we might see some serious shifts. And do you think GCSEs get banned by 2025? Yeah, they might do. Look, I, no, I think that's a good point. GCSEs, people now have realised you don't necessarily have to sit down. The world doesn't end if you don't sit down and do these high stakes exams. That would be nice because we're all in school till 18 anyway now. Why do you need to do GCSEs? Good question. They could get banned. And actually, there is some political energy in the Conservative uh, Party for that as well. So then you could start to imagine it happening. Power of incremental change. Um, okay, three easy questions, hopefully. Your favourite book about learning? Wow. Um, something I've read by E.O. Wilson. He writes a lot about consilience, this idea of kind of going through your life and slowly trying to kind of put together things and integrate. He's a, he's a, a biologist, but yeah. And, and I, I really enjoy reading him because he has this kind of much more interdisciplinary, slowly, slowly approach to making connections and understanding the world. 
And your favorite book not about learning? I'm currently making my way through, have you heard of the Robert Caro biography of Lyndon Johnson? That, that I'm halfway through, I'm about to start the third volume of that, and it's just incredible. And I had no particular interest in Lyndon Johnson before, but now I'm completely fascinated. It reads like a thriller. It's amazing. I don't know if you've read it, but highly recommend that. Each volume is a thousand pages, and everybody's just hoping that Caro stays alive to finish it, because in his 80s now, he's been writing it for something like 45 years. Yeah, he is phenomenal. Okay, and what are you binge watching? I think right now, the last thing I've been binge watching is like horrific. It's the the Housewives, Beverly, Sunning Hills. I mean, genuinely horrendous. I've never seen it before, but I've seen about six of them in about 48 hours. <laughs> I feel really, really horrible. Um, so I'm not recommending that to anyone, but that's my honest answer. The Housewives of Beverly Hill. I would not have guessed that in a million years, but I have to say I like you more, A, for admitting it, <laughs> and be for kind of liking it. Ed, thank you so much for coming on and good luck with the London Interdisciplinary School. Thanks, Jenny. My impression of Ed's work, both at School 21 and LIS, is that it focuses on trying to create spaces and places that let humans be curious and explore. His teams are designing a curriculum and allowing for teaching that encourages thinking, creating, iterating, and solving. I love the idea of the problem as the API and also complexity being a goal, not just depth, as long as there's enough depth, of course, to be able to tackle complexity. I was struck by Ed's comment about how the pandemic raised the bar for not just what we do online, but also what we do in real life. As he said, the in-person stuff has to be really fantastic and really kind of visceral or interactive and students need to be prepared. I'll be curious to see how they design for that. I found myself wondering whether traditionalists will buy into this interdisciplinarity. And then I realized that's the wrong question. First of all, there's the fact that the ginormous U.S. system is based on the idea that higher education requires more than single subject expertise. But more importantly, there are a ton of universities in Britain for the traditionalists. LIS is offering an alternative, a place for pioneers who want to do things differently or who know the status quo will not serve them well. This is a large group, I suspect, and we're in a moment in history which we are coming to terms with the very obvious but pretty profound reality that individuals are really different. They want different things. What Todd Rose calls our jagged profiles. Entertainment and e-commerce and medicine relentlessly innovate, understanding this. LIS is an example that education can innovate too. How big a risk is it for students to pursue it? Probably not as big as they think. By dint of being a startup, the leadership team is maniacally focused on students in a way that no Russell Group University will be. And at a time when 285,000 students are graduating with high marks from traditional institutions into an uncertain and rapidly changing world, it's fair to ask whether the real risk is in following the herd. Thanks for listening. We'll link to the items mentioned in today's podcast in the show notes. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and share it. And you can find out more about our community of global education leaders and upcoming meetups by joining our mailing list at learnit.world. In the meantime, stay safe, stay curious, and see you next week.